This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. We're ready to start class. Are you ready? Let's do some exercises. You know, this is physical, mental, spiritual health. You want to stand up? Okay. You're going to take your hands like this. And take your left hand, your other left, and move it around like this ten times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Right hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Stand on your left leg. Take your right leg and out five times. Don't kick the person in front of you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Come on, you can do better than that. 16, I'm 68, 17. Okay, now the next one. 1, 2, 3, left leg, 4, 5. This circulates the blood so that the red blood cells carrying oxygen oxygenate your brain so you think more clearly so you don't fall asleep halfway through Pastor Finley's class. So what number were we on? 19, 20, 21. Reach for your hips. Put your hands right underneath your ribs. If you can't find your ribs, be sure to come to our weight control class. <laughs> Breathe in through your mouth. Out, no, in through your nose. <laughs> out through your mouth. Breathe, breathe in through your mouth and out through your nose. No, <laughs> breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. You ready to go? Ah, you feel good. Out through your mouth. <sighs> Bend over and cough. <coughs> now let me listen. Only seven smokers. In through your... In through your nose, out through your mouth. Go slow, not fast, but you hyperventilate and you pass out. In through your nose. Out through your mouth. In through your nose. Out through your mouth. In through your nose. Out through your mouth. That's good. Okay, I need this young man to help me. We're going to face this wall, okay? Now, your thumbs go behind the shoulder blade. Your fingers go above the shoulder blade. It's like kneading bread. You push in with your thumbs and in with your arms. It's called a neck massage. Okay, you ready? You ready? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Always pushing up with your thumb and in with your fingers. Let's practice again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, ten. Turn this way, please, to the next wall. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. I'm going to do this rest of class. Fourteen, fifteen, sixty. You may be seated, please. Thank you very much. All right. Now remember, this is a three-session class. How many sessions, everybody? Three. three sessions. This is session number two. In our first class, we looked at this reality. That Jesus reached people as he ministered to their needs, as he won their confidence, and then he bade them follow him. That the essence of all soul winning is relationships. Through relationships, we break down prejudice through relationships, but relationships are not enough. You see, if you just make a friend, that doesn't mean 
that that friend is going to spend eternity with you, right? Making friends is not sufficient enough. You can go play basketball and have a friend, but that friend may not be a Christian at all. There are people that meet in some pub and they say, oh, uh, uh, we're friends. Now, somebody asked me in the break, did you mean to infer that if we're Christians, we should go to pubs with people? I did not mean to infer that. <laughs> and if that is what you took away from the first class, attend the first class again next time. Uh, no, I didn't mean to infer that at all. There are some places that Christians just do not feel comfortable going because we know that we are vulnerable and that even though we are converted, the devil will take any advantage to destroy our souls, right? So, what are we doing? We are looking for bonded relationships with our friends that can break down prejudice because we know that the postmodern mind wants belonging before what? Believing. Is believing important? It absolutely is. It's the essence of Christian faith. But if people don't feel they belong, they don't have opportunity to do what? Believe. And so how do we reach postmodern people? Develop relationships, break down prejudice, tell them stories about what works for us. We call that our personal testimony. Tell stories about what Christianity means in our own life. We model Christianity to them. Now, a few of you had some questions. We'll answer a few questions before we go on into our next session. Questions? Is there a question? Any questions here? Here. Okay? Keep questions in your mind, ready to launch into our next session, and let's pray as we do. We're looking at... Jesus, God's Word, and our needs, and we'll have some worksheets for you in class number three. We'll have worksheets for number two and number three. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we study about how to apply the Word of God in the hearts and minds of people, as we study about the incredible power in God's Word, reignite our souls with a sense that one text dropped into the heart and mind of somebody else can change their life. We pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. He was a pastor's son, brought up in an Adventist elementary school through his first eight grades. I knew the family well. By the time he was in the eighth grade, he began fiddling around with some other kids in the Adventist school in the northeast of America. And begin, he began smoking, he was in the eighth grade began drinking by the time he was in the first year of high school, dropped out of high school and got involved in the drug culture. And as a result of that, it was a very challenging time for his pastor father, Seventh-day Adventist pastor father and his uh, mother. When I was holding evangelistic meetings in that city, the dad came to me and said, I need to explain to you, my wife will not be at the evangelistic meetings because if she comes, our son will have a drug party at our house. In fact, the newspaper came out when the police raided the Adventist pastor's home and said um, that um, there was a drug party at the Adventist pastor's house. The pastor said, I've been on my knees praying and praying. I've done everything I know to raise my son for the kingdom of God, but he has made choices. Now, you know, there are parents that look at their son's choices and say, what did I do wrong? Um, I wonder what God did wrong in the Garden of Eden. The environment must not have been perfect because if it was, Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned, right? So God must have been a terrible parent to Adam and Eve. Is that true or false? That's false, right? God did everything he could for Adam and Eve, didn't he?
But when you give the power of choice, you run the risk that those to whom you give the power of choice will make wrong choices. Was there anything wrong up in heaven? Was there anything wrong up there? But did Lucifer make a bad choice? So when we think of ourselves as parents, we say to ourselves, we haven't always made the best choices. At times we've made poor ones. But, uh, and, and at times we have not always brought our kids up in a way that, that we wish we could. We've tried to do our best. But look, God gives to every one of us the power of choice. So to be saved or lost does not depend on my environment. It depends on my what? My choice. Because Adam and Eve had the perfect environment. Satan had the perfect environment in heaven. And look what happened to them. And you're not going to blame God. Or you're not going to blame Eden, right? So I think a lot of parents take blame upon themselves for choices. And so this Adventist couple were really hurting badly. And we talked for many, many an hour. And um, their son eventually, um, of course, left the Adventist church went to live with somebody that wasn't his wife. And one night, I was holding an evangelistic meeting in a distant city. And I had known the family. I had known that boy. And um, I looked out over my audience. And I saw way in the back row this young man who had been living with this girl that wasn't his wife. I saw him sitting there, long hair down to his shoulders, eyes sunk deeply into his head, sallow skin. And I saw him sitting there. I prayed, Lord, help me to be able to talk to him. After the meeting, he began to come down the aisle. And I saw him holding his girlfriend's hand. And she began to pull him in the opposite direction to lead him out of, she didn't want him to talk to me. She said, you know, you don't have to talk to that preacher. But he kind of broke ranks with her and he came down. A lot of people were around me and I knew I had only three minutes with him, maybe four at the most, because there were so many people there. And I looked him in the eye and I said, man, am I glad to see you. I'm so glad you came to the meeting. And I know that we don't have much time together. And he said, yeah, I'm going to have to go. And I said, man, what can I say? And I said, you know, before you go, can I share with something with you? I said, you know, you may be feeling pretty badly right now. You know, you've dropped out of high school. You've got a brilliant mind. You've got fantastic possibilities ahead for you. And uh, you may be feeling really badly. Uh, might be feeling, you know, I kind of ruined my life, and uh, you may feel trapped in a relationship. You may be, feel trapped with habits and bondage. I said, I don't know how you're feeling, but I can just, my heart just goes out to you, and could you just let me share with you one thing, one text? He said, okay, sure, share it, share it. I opened my Bible, and I read Joel, the second chapter. Joel, chapter two. Joel, the second chapter. I'd like you to take your Bible if you have it. Our topic is why the Word of God is so incredibly powerful in a postmodern generation. We're going to look at Joel to check in the second chapter. And I said, let me read you one passage, and I'm going to read it like it says it in the Bible, then I'm going to re re rephrase it for you. Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 25. You know, you may be looking back over your life and saying, I have ruined my life. I have just um, made so many poor choices. I don't know what, how I can get out of this mess. Joel chapter 2, verse 25 and onward. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. 
the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, the great army which I sent among you, you shall eat and plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who's, done, who's dealt wondrously with you and my people shall not be ashamed. Let me rephrase the text. I'm gonna to restore to you the years that alcohol has eaten, the drugs have eaten. I'm gonna to restore to you the years that you have ruined your life. I'm gonna send my great army among you, my angels, and they are gonna beat back the forces of hell. You are gonna eat in plenty. You're gonna be really be satisfied. One day you're gonna be praising God and you're gonna give your testimony and say he's done wondrously for you. And I said, that is God's promise for you. How does God restore the years? You can't go back and live the last five. You can't go back and live the last six. But what can happen is this. God restores the years by giving you a better future. And the better future so dominates your thinking. The better future so fills your mind. The better future is so bright and glorious with Jesus Christ that the past hurt and agony is nothing in comparison to the better future. And I looked at this young man, I said, that's what God's gonna do for you. Just keep saying to yourself, I'll restore the years. About a year later, I met him again. He said, Pastor Mark, all I could think of after I left you is the promise of God, I'll restore the years, I'll restore the years, I'll restore the years. He went back, got his GED, and graduated from high school. He went on to Andrews University and finished an undergraduate degree in theology. He went on and got a master's degree in theology. When I was at It Is Written, we hired Mark Fox as one of our conference, our, our It Is Written evangelists. He, holds evan he held evangelistic meetings all over the country and today is one of our successful evangelists. But he came from a background and he, where he felt, you know, I've made some poor choices. But a Bible text, a Bible text, I will restore the years, among many other things. Of course, his parents prayed and prayed and prayed. But here is my point. There is something incredibly powerful in the Word of God. Amen. Other books may be inspiring, but the Bible is inspired. Amen. Other books may be enlightening, but the Bible is enlightened. Other books may carry the word of men, but the Bible carries the word of the living God. Now here's the difference in the Bible and any other book. There are many differences, but here's one difference. The Bible carries with it the power to create that which it declares. The Bible is a creative word. Now my word is a declarative word. I can say, this is a chair. This is a chair, okay? God can say, this is a chair. And the words out of God's mouth create that which God declares, because God's word is a creative word. I can look up and say, that's the sun. And God can say, where there is no sun, that's the sun. And what happens? The sun appears, because God's word carries with it creative power. I want you to see that in scripture, because this is a powerful thought for soul winners. As you develop relationships, as you meet needs, as you tell your story, you begin to share a Bible passage with somebody. And when you plant that seed in their mind, God waters it with his Holy Spirit, and it becomes life transformational for them. Now take your Bible. The Bible is different than any other book. Somebody's going to grasp a principle in this class that is going to be 
revolutionary for you. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 12. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is what? Quick. What's another word for quick? Sharp. Yes, rapid, fast. Okay, but, uh, but New King James Version is a better translation. The word of God is what? Living. It's alive. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of the soul, that's our spiritual faculties, the spirit, that's our mental faculties, the joints and marrows, that is our physical faculties, the discerner, the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now notice, when you share the word of God, it's alive and it works in people's hearts. Keep your finger in, in Hebrews 4, turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We plant the seed, we sow the seed, and God, God's, God grows the seed. We sow the seed, God grows the seed. Look, here's Mark chapter 4, verse 26. In the kingdom of God, and that's what you and I have been asked to do. We've been asked to, to advance the kingdom of God. Mark 4, 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. Look, you go pray with somebody. You give somebody a Bible study. You share a Bible text, and it seems that nothing is happening at all. But that seed is growing in their heart. That seed is growing in their life. And God is going to do something amazing that you do not know. You know, 20 years ago, we went, my wife and I went to Russia to preach in the Kremlin Auditorium. Now, I mean, to preach in the Kremlin is far more difficult than to preach in the American Congress. I mean, the Kremlin Auditorium where we preached was the Palace of Atheism. I mean, that's where Gorbachev spoke, and that's where Chernoff uh, spoke, and that's where Andropov spoke, and that's where Khrushchev and, and so forth spoke. I mean, this is the, the heart of communism spoke in the Kremlin. After I spoke in the Kremlin, went to the Olympic Stadium to speak. And the Olympic Stadium was tough. And the reason the Olympic Stadium in Moscow was so tough, we had 18,000 people coming a night. We brought 100 medical personnel with us. We did 18,000 uh, blood uh, draws. And you know, but every night as I got up to speak in the Olympic Stadium, the first 14 nights, I was attacked because there was a cult leader by the name of Mary David Christ. And um, Mary David Christ believed that she was Mary, the mother of the new Messiah, who would be the King David that would rule the nations. And she believed she was pregnant with him. She had 21,000 followers between 18 and 22 years old. You see, when you dismiss the word of God and the reality of truth, young people go seeking for something else. They'll seek into the occult, they'll, get, they'll seek into spiritualism and other things. And that's why the best answer to the needs of, the young, of youthful hearts is Jesus Christ and the living Word of God. Because he satisfies the deepest needs. So anyway, the first night I got up to speak in the Olympic Stadium, because I had been there and we had baptized a lot of KGB people and a lot of Russian Army soldiers, and, uh, when I got up to speak, a large group of women got up in Russian tradition and brought me flowers. And so I was reaching down to pick up the flowers. And one lady came up, and I should have known because the flowers were wilted that she gave me. When I reached out to get them, she pulled the microphone out of my hand. This was opening night of the evangelistic meetings, and she began to yell before 18,000 people, this man is the Antichrist, this man is the Antichrist. 
Mary David Christ was that cult leader. You can read about her if you Google her on the internet. She is one of the leading Russian cult leaders, has been in prison now. But anyway, she had 18,000 to 21,000 uh, uh, followers. They believed her, both, mostly young men. She attracted young men. They believed that they were the white knights. They believed they were the good angels that were cast out of heaven to fight, I mean, that we came from heaven. They were the good angels that came from heaven to fight against the evil forces on earth and that I was the epitome of those evil forces. So when she gave that signal, they jumped up out of their seats and began to rush the stage. That was a really interesting time. <laughs> Fortunately, I had baptized many KGB and Russian army soldiers <laughs> that had not forgotten their skills. And when they saw their old pastor getting attacked, they knew just what to do, and uh, they were fully capable. So we went to the Russian police, and they said, this is free society now. If those people want to jump up and yell and scream and run, they can do that but we will deputize your ushers in the evangelistic meeting. The first time I ever deputized the ushers, and you can apprehend these people and lock them up, but just let them out after the meeting. So we found a stinky, the stinkiest, smelliest Russian toilet block we could find in the bowels of the Olympic Stadium. Uh, that's a good illusion, in the bowels of the Olympic Stadium, a stinky <laughs> Russian toilet, but anyway. We would capture these kids as they jumped up every night, drag them into that thing, kicking and screaming, lock them up in that smelly place, and then uh, let them out. Um, the amazing thing about that story is this. 20 years ago, that experience happened. And just last year, year before, my wife and I went back to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the conversion in the Olympics. We had hundreds who come to Christ baptized. and so forth. We were at a new church there, and in fact, we are so short of church buildings in Russia that three congregations meet in one church, and of those three congregations, we baptized two of the pastors in our Olympic Stadium meetings 20 years ago. But anyway, when I came there, a, a guy came up to me. He was now in his 30s, so this was 20 years ago, so he had been a teenager 20, I mean 20 years ago, so this was, he had been a teenager 20 years ago. He said, do you remember me? I looked at the guy, do you remember me? I mean, Phew. I mean, I see, I mean, people come up to me all the time, do you remember me? I'm thinking, do I remember you now? Let's see. I mean, and it was 20 years ago, and I had 18,000 people coming to the meetings. Do you remember me? And I said, you know, to be honest, I can't. He said, that's a good thing. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was one of the teenagers up in the balcony throwing rocks at you during your preaching. <laughs> and he said, you know, pastor, in those meetings, I came to Jesus. In those meetings, I gave my heart to the Lord. The word of God is what? Living. It's powerful. Uh, Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9. You may not see immediate results. I never thought that that guy that was trying to beam me with those rocks would be a prime convert. But the Lord does more. What did our text in Mark 4 say? It says, we plant the seed, we sow the seed, and God does what? Grows the seed. It says that we sleep, but we planted the seed and this living word of God is life transformational. So here we go. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9. Psalm 33, verse 6, verse 9. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Now notice, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. They are not the product of evolutionary chance. Verse 9, 
God spoke and it was done, not in the process of being done for a billion years or a million, 500 million or whatever. He commanded it stood fast. Now, so God's word is powerful. He spoke and the sun, moon, and stars came into existence. He spoke and flowers blossomed. He spoke and earth was carpeted with living grain. He spoke and brooks appeared and flowers and fruit trees and animals and the human race appeared. So God's word is a creative word. Now here's the amazing thing. The same power of creation that is in the spoken word of God is in the written word of God. Now here's a statement. You want to write this one down. When you get your notes, you'll get it, but it's good for you to write it down. You'll remember it if you write it. Listen, education, page 126. The creative energy. The what? Creative energy. What's another word for energy? Power. The creative energy that called worlds into existence is in the Word of God. I mean, that is incredible. The creative energy that called worlds into existence is where? In the Word of God. This word imparts power, it begets life. Every command is a promise, accepted by the will, received into the soul. It brings with it the life of the infinite one. It transforms the nature and recreates the soul in the image of God. So the creative energy that brought worlds into existence is in the word of God. Now, Listen, let, it's one thing for me to read to somebody, say, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive them. But I want you to see the breadth of what I've just said here. It is not only that when they grasp that, there's a legislative action in heaven where God pronounces them just through the blood of Jesus. There's not only a legal transaction, but when I accept by faith the Bible passage that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them, he implants within my heart forgiveness and creates within me a peace and a freedom from guilt. So grasping the promises of God by faith produces within me creation all over again. When I read in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to grasp it by faith and let God create within me love, joy, peace. So as I read the Word of God and store it in my mind, I am saying, God, your Word is a creative Word. Now, notice this statement found in Ministry of Healing, page 122. So with all the promises of God's word, in them he is speaking to us individually. This is Ministry of Healing, one, page 122. Speaking as directly as if we could listen to his voice. What if it was announced that Jesus was going to be teaching the class today? You'll say that would be the false Christ. I know, but let's suppose we were 2,000 years ago. <laughs> let's suppose we were 2,000 years ago and you lived 2,000 years ago, and you heard that Jesus was going to give the Sermon on the Mount on the hillsides of Galilee. Would you go fishing 
or would you go sit and listen to him? I mean, wouldn't you want to go? I, I'd want to be there, wouldn't you? I mean, if I knew Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, I wouldn't want to be fishing that day. Maybe fish tomorrow, but I, I'd be there, right? Okay, now listen. Christ is speaking to us individually. He's speaking as directly through his word as if we could listen with our own voice. I mean, that's incredible. Now, it is in these promises that Christ communicates to us his grace and power. They are the leaves from the tree of life, which is for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life that once was in Eden was taken to heaven. That tree of life grows so big that its branches lean over the walls of the holy city and come down to us today. And we pick the leaves, which are for the healing of the nations, and eat and assimilate them as we read God's word. Listen as I read. It is in these promises that Christ communicates his grace and power. They are leaves from the tree, which is for the healing of the nations. Received, assimilated, they are to be the strength of character. Now, it's not only that you read the Bible. Is it possible to read the Bible and get no benefit at all? Okay, is there a Bible text on that? Is there a Bible text that says you can read the Bible, but you won't get any benefit? You're doubtful. You don't need to be doubtful anymore. Turn to Hebrews 4, verse 2. Hebrews 4, verse 2. Is there a Bible text that says you can read the Bible and you can get no benefit out of it, no profit from it? Okay, Hebrews 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Did these people hear the gospel? Yes. But the word they heard did not what? Profit them. Why not? Not being mixed with what? Faith in those that heard it. So is it possible to read the Word of God and not have your life changed? Did the Pharisees read the Word of God? Were their minds filled with the Word of God? So what is the difference? It is when you read the Bible, you assimilate it by faith. You say, Jesus, I'm listening to you as if you were speaking to me with your own voice. Jesus, these are the leaves of the tree of life that are coming over the walls of the holy city. Lord, as I eat this, bring healing and health to my spiritual and physical bodies. So let me continue the statement. Received, assimilated. They are to be the strength of character, the inspiration, the sustenance of life. Nothing else can have such healing power. Nothing else can have such healing power. Mind, body, soul. Nothing beside can impart the courage and faith which give vital energy to the whole being. I mean, nothing else can have such healing power. As you read the Bible, you're healed physically, mentally, spiritually. Nothing else can give such vital energy to the whole being as the Bible. You read the word of God. You, ass you assimilate it by faith. You believe those promises, internalize them. Now, why is the Bible so powerful? I'm going to give you ten reasons. You'll get this printed out later. But ten reasons why the Bible is so powerful. Reason number one. Ten reasons why the Bible is so powerful. Reason number one. God's word is divinely inspired. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says what? All scripture is given how? By inspiration of, By inspiration of whom? God. God. So God's word is divinely inspired. Give me five reasons why you know the Bible is inspired. Reason number one. 
If somebody said to you, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a university student, you and I are taking physics together, you say to me, you know, uh, I've really appreciated the opportunity of getting to know you in class, we've been studying together, we've been playing some racquetball together, and uh, you know, it's, our relationship is a great one, and I, I noticed you were a little discouraged after you got that F- minus in that physics test the other day. Uh, <laughs> And, um, uh, you know, something that, it, and so you, you share them, you know, um, maybe as, as you begin to share with that person, you say, you know, um, maybe we can study together uh, before the first test. I did fairly well. And the person says, you know, why have you taken an interest in me? Well, because I kind of, you're my friend. But, you know, there must be a deeper reason than that. Well, you know, I'm a Christian, and I, I really want to do what I can to help others. You know, that Christianity stuff, I couldn't believe that. You know, if you take those first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the person says to you, you know, they're really kind of, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a myth in Genesis. And, and do you actually believe the Bible is inspired? I mean, how in the world can you believe the Bible is inspired? I mean, it's been copied so many times, and isn't it filled with error? And, um, I mean, really. Okay, five evidences the Bible is inspired. Yes, evidence number one. What's that? Historically proven to be accurate. How? Somebody give me a historical proof. Yes. Go ahead. Geographical. That's good. In other words, the, the places that the Bible mentions are actual real places. So that's a possibility. Other ways that you know the Bible's inspired. What other ways? Yes. Prophecies have been fulfilled. If I am your friend and you say to me, prophecies have been fulfilled, and I say to you, Name two or three specific prophecies that have been specifically fulfilled beyond a shadow of a doubt. What would you say? Okay, Jesus coming. You've got to be more specific. Okay, yes. Daniel's statue. I'm your friend. Make it simple. Daniel's statue. Okay, yes. Well, I never heard of Daniel's statue. What's that all about? Okay, I got to, uh, you know... Okay, come on. You, you're doing good. You're doing good. Daniel's statue. What was the statue about? Different empires. Okay. Oh, you mean the Bible actually reveals empires? It does. What empires did it reveal? Babylon. Well, Babylon. When, when did that exist? When did Babylon exist? Did the Bible actually name Babylon? If I'm your friend, you've got to sharpen your skills, right? You got to know these things on the tip of your tongue, right? You want to convert me, right? You're a little too vague for me. You're a little too vague for me. Come on now, somebody help me here. Give me one or two prophecies that you can tell me as a, as a secular person, right off the top of your head, that are very simple. What's that? Babylon would not be inhabited anymore. Where is that? Babylon would not be inhabited anymore. I mean, not in the Bible, but... Okay, let me give you three, three or four quick. Oh, yes. Destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, okay? Okay, you're doing good. You're doing good. You're doing good, okay? <laughs> All right. Let me tell you how I respond to that. I'm talking to somebody, and they say to me, you know, Mark, I just don't have much. I'll give you an example, good example. I was flying out of New York City. I got upgraded to first class. Very unusual. We wish it happened more often. But anyway, got upgraded. Young man, I estimate in his early 20s, came up and sat next to me in first class. So I had my Bible on my chair next to me, my seat. My Bible's sitting there, 
And this young man looks over at me and he said, do you read that book? And by the way, he asked me, I said, yeah, sometimes I, I, I read the book. Yeah, yeah I, I do sometimes. I said, do you ever read it? He said, no, I'm an atheist. Oh, that's good. I would be an atheist too, but I can't have as much faith as atheists have. So because I think logically, I could never be an atheist. <laughs> Maybe you can share with me how to have that kind of faith. He said, I am, he looked at me, he said, this guy is from another planet. You know? <laughs> so I knew I had to get the guy thinking. So I said, he said, what do you mean? I said, let me give you an example. When I took biology 101, the first law of biology is that life produces life. That non-living things don't produce living things. Do we have any example, any place in nature where something that is non-living produces a living thing? He said, I can't think of one. I said, if you even take an amino acid chain and you take all the brilliance of the human mind to arrange the amino acids in the right formula, right DNA and so forth, can you produce life? He said, well, we're, we're kind of approaching that. I said, well, then that proves my point, doesn't it? That it takes an intelligent scientist even to arrange the minimum amino acid chains to get not even life but something you might say is a life form, but it doesn't produce life. He said, I'd agree with you. So I said, would you then agree with me that it takes a quantum leaf of faith to believe that this would happen by chance? So the second law of physics is that not only does life produce life, but like produces like. Apple trees produce apples. You can have mutations, but typically mutations are going to degenerate, not. So that led us into a discussion. And I said to him eventually something like this. Let me share with you some things about the Word of God that you may not be aware of. Very simple things. So when you start with somebody, the first thing you want to do is shake up their thinking process. Because they think that you can't be intelligent at all if you read the Bible. They think it's a bunch of myths and fables. So the first thing you have to do is very kindly, but you don't do it cynically or skeptically because you'll turn them off immediately. And, and uh, so the first thing you do when you're dealing with the postmodern mind particularly, when you see an openness, you've developed a relationship, you've got to make some bridge where they're going to be able to see that the Bible is credible. There has to be some basic bridge where they're going to see the Bible is credible, okay? That's the basic bridge. So if I'm making that bridge after I've developed a relationship with the person, after we have um, talked about their needs and what's going on in their heart and their life and after we have come to that point and after I see somewhat of an openness I will say something like this you know there are some incredible things about the Bible that you may not be aware of you know I wasn't aware of them either and so you kind of put yourself in their boat and I said let me share with you just a couple things it's rather interesting that the Jews were in captivity to, to Babylon. And God named 150 years in advance the ruler of Babylon, Cyrus, that would, that would over, the ruler of Medo-Persia, Cyrus, that would overthrow Babylon and let the Jews go back and build their temple. That's found in Isaiah the 44th chapter. And that's kind of interesting that God could name Cyrus 150 years before he was born say that he would actually dry up the river Euphrates 
That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And you know, it's, it's also kind of interesting. We, you, you wondered about the inspiration of the Bible. It's, it's kind of interesting as well that the town that Christ was born in was named in the prophets Micah about 700 years in advance. That's, that's kind of an interesting thing. The Bible says out of the Bethlehem. Now notice what I've done so far. I've just quit two prophecies, just quick. And we don't, we just leave them in the mind of the person. They're gonna think about them because what did we say earlier? The word of God is like what? Seed. We plant it in the soil of the mind. You see, develop a relationship, meet a need. As the conversation opens, then you just begin to, because we're talking about the postmodern mind, we're talking about it's based on relationships, there's belonging before believing, but there comes a point that you have to make that transition from relationship to belief, relationship to cognitive understanding. So what we have done is, one area is the prophecies of the Bible. If you are pressed by the postmodern mind, we talk about the prophecies of the Bible. I will usually talk about Cyrus, because that's a remarkable one. I'll talk about the fact that Christ was born in Bethlehem of all the towns that he could have been born in, you know, but the Bible named that. I also, at times, will say something like this. My wife is a master at this one. I will say, you know, there is a prophecy in the Bible, it's quite extended, that deals with nations and empires in the second chapter of the book of Daniel. Do you like to listen to tapes or DVDs? And uh, I have something I'd like to give you. My wife has had three, is it three of your hairdressers now baptized? Three hairdressers <laughs> baptized that she has loaned tapes to. And this has been just a very quite uh, amazing uh, time uh, because of that. And so we have uh, done that and shared tapes with many, many, many a person. So what are the evidences of the inspiration of the Bible? Number one, the prophecies of the Bible. Number two, the life-changing testimony of those who study the Bible. And you can give your own testimony. Say, you know, the Bible has really inspired me. That really relates to a postmodern mind. Tell your story, tell what God has done in your life and, and, and share that. You can also, in the idea of the um, inspiration of the Bible, one of the things that I do is I tell people how the Bible came down through to the generations. I tell a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how it was, the Bible was copied so ac accurately. You can also talk about archaeology in the Bible. There's some great archaeological finds of the Bible. And um, so there are many different ways. And this afternoon, I'm going to give you those 10 reasons. You're going to get those in print, plus we're going to study the human mind. But Eric, come on up with me just now. I, Eric has not always been a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And uh, Eric, uh, why don't you take the microphone here? And um, Eric, uh, where, where, where were you going to university? I was uh, attending the University of Florida uh, a few years ago. Okay, and you were a committed Christian going to university there and every day praying and studying the Word of God. Okay, and uh, while you were at the University of Florida, um, there was a stirring in your heart. How has the Word of God, how did the Word of God impact you as a university student? When I got to the University of Florida, I found that there were a lot of different people going there. They had a wide variety of beliefs, and I believed myself to be a Christian, but didn't know why I was a Christian, so I started studying the Bible. And as I began to study the Bible, I started to realize that some of the things I had learned being brought up weren't biblical. 
And when I started to find that out, I realized I needed to make some changes in my life. Do you find that, did you find at that time at the University of Florida and from studying, from talking to many students, that there may be more Bible study going on on university campuses that we typically recognize and more kids are looking for something. It's kind of a foment where they're really looking. There's quite a few students who are looking for something. Some of them are actively seeking Christianity. Others are just trying to find where the answers are. And the more that we can give them something worthwhile to sink their teeth into, the better. Uh, I ended up going into modeling and acting after going to college. And as I began to look at the world and see what it had to offer, I compared that with what the Bible had to offer and left that lifestyle entirely, and I've been working in the evangelism for about 12 years now. How did you become a Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, it was through Bible study. In fact, when I started studying the Bible, I began going to an Adventist church and asking people if they could give me some Bible studies. I went to the pastor of the church and asked him if he could give me some Bible studies. He said he'd love to, but he was kind of busy, so he had to talk with the, the head elder. So I went to him, and I asked him if he'd give me some Bible studies, and he said he'd love to, too, but he was kind of busy, so maybe if I could talk with the collegiate director, he could help me. So I went to him and asked him if he would study with me. He said he'd love to maybe meet with me on Tuesday afternoon uh, and do some Bible study. So I showed up, and for the next hour and a half, he told me about all the difficulties he was having with his girlfriend. <laughs> so, uh, the problem is neither of them had to be been to, to GYC, <laughs> and they didn't come to this class. But uh, <laughs> you know, by the grace of God, I, I was interested in finding out what the truth was. And over the course of the next six and a half to seven years, by the grace of God, I pulled the pieces together and uh, made a decision to be baptized. Now, you said you do evan you've done evangelism for 12 years. What are you doing right now? Uh, right now, I'm the director of the Northeast Evangelism Training School. It's called NETS. We're operating on the campus of Atlantic Union College just outside of Boston, about an hour west of Boston, Massachusetts. And how long is that course? Well, we've got a four-month course. We offer a spring course and a fall course. And what do students learn when they go there? Uh, when students come to uh, NETS, the Northeast Evangelism Training School, they will learn uh, health evangelism, personal evangelism or Bible work and public evangelism, and most importantly, how to pull all of those together so that you can have a seamless uh, method of bringing people into the truth and helping them to understand it and believe it and then share it with other people. So it's a four-month program. Have you seen any young people's lives change? They've come to the program. You recently worked in New York City with us, and you had a group of your students there. What kind of changes have you seen in young people's lives who've gone through that four months as they've immersed themselves in the Word of God? We've seen some incredible changes in the lives of, of young people. We had one young lady uh, who wasn't planning on coming to the, to the course. We met her just shortly before the course began. She felt impressed to come, and uh, through the course of the, uh, of the seminar, through the course of the semester, she felt impressed that she needed to begin doing active Bible work uh, and she's been uh, picked up by the Greater New York Conference to do Bible work in Manhattan. Yeah, I know her well. She's doing a fabulous job. The youngest student the, to the oldest student. The youngest student, 17 years old. Oldest student, I believe, 68. Okay, then I just about get under the wire. Um, if you you'd probably let me in. Okay. <laughs> if there were students here that were interested in you, um, how will they recognize you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you have some materials you could, you could give them? Okay. Uh, some material at the back, I uh, have some brochures. We also have a booth down in the exhibit hall. It's uh, Nets. should be easy to find. Just look for yellow shirts. We also have our graduates who are walking around in similar yellow shirts, and they would be more than happy to tell so, you about it, and we'd be happy to let them know. If you want to immerse your mind in the Word of God for four months, see Eric, great teacher. Kevin Sears is with him. And uh, now, let's finish up today. Here we go. Dylan, what time am I done? What time do I finish? Do I finish it? What time's the next seminar?
Five more minutes I got? Oh, I got 10 minutes. Oh, I'm doing great. I can do a lot in 10 minutes. Here we go. Okay. Here are, we're looking at the 10 basic reasons why God's word is so incredibly life-changing. And here they are. First, God's word is divinely inspired. Fill your mind with understanding the inspiration of God's word. Be sure that you can explain to somebody simply why God's word is inspired. Secondly, God's word is eternally enduring. You're going to get this material as well. God's word is eternally enduring. The Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Here's one thing you can be absolutely certain of that God's word will apply to every generation. Thirdly, God's word is universally applicable. I have preached the word of God in the jungles of Brazil to Indian tribes. I've been in the mountains of the Philippines and set up an old wooden table with a lantern and had tribes. I preached it to Russian scientists in Pushina, which was a closed city where a thousand biologists came out. To primitive people in the jungles, the most intelligent mind. God's word is what, everybody? Un powerful. It is inspired. It is universally applicable. God's word is completely trustworthy. When you share God's word, and you'll get all the texts on this, it's trustworthy. You are sharing something that's going to make a difference. Fifth, God's word is powerfully transforming. You share God's word, and it will transform people's lives. Sixth, God's word is totally satisfying. You remember what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 15, verse 16? Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were joy and rejoicing in my heart. You, what young people are looking for is to fill that aching void in their heart. The truth of God's word does that. Seven, God's word is everlastingly strengthening. God's word brings strength to people's life. They're, they may be weak, but they read God's word, they become strong. Eighth, God's word is incredibly enlightening. Remember what David said in the Psalms, 119 verse 105? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. You begin to read God's word, your future becomes plain. God opens the door. Ninth, God's word is wonderfully hopeful. Wonderfully hopeful. I was just at a lifestyle center for three weeks to exercise and try to get my health in order. And uh, my wife and I exercise every day. We try to anyway. We are vegan vegetarians. But there are times that there are various genetic issues and so in other environmental issues. I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and Russia right after the Chernobyl. And so there were some things uh, in my body uh, possibly that uh, needed to be dealt with. So I was at this lifestyle center. The man across from me Dick was dying of cancer. They took him to the hospital one night and I felt very badly for him because I didn't see him. I didn't pray with him. Wondered whether I'd ever see him again. A few days they brought him back and I said, oh Lord, help me to know what to say to Dick. And there was a song that, um, that I had heard on the internet called Then Comes the Morning. So I went over to Dick's room. I set up my computer on his bed. I said, Dick, I, listen. I want you to listen to this. So he listens to this song, Then Comes the Morning, and tears begin to come down his face. He's crying. I say to Dick, let me read you some of the hopeful promises in God's word. A dying man needs a lot more than death is a, long, uh, death is a deep hole in the ground, and it's a long night without a morning. See, if you're an atheist, what do you say to your friend whose wife has just been killed by a drunk driver? What do you say to your friend whose baby has just been born dead? 
What do you say to a dick who's dying of cancer? See, the atheist has no hope for them. But thank God the word of God gives to you and me hope. God's word is wonderfully hopeful. Don't miss reading Romans 15, verse 4. You've got to read that one. Romans 15, verse 4. We're going to look at it. Take your Bible, please. Here it is. Romans 15, verse 4. Ninth reason. The word of God is wonderfully. The word of God is incredibly hopeful. There is no book filled with more hope than the word of God. If you need a good dose of hope, it's in, found in God's word. I am never embarrassed to share God's word because I recognize that when we develop relationships and meet needs and share God's word, look, Romans 15, verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have what? Hope. Verse 13, Romans 15. Now may the God of what? Hope. He's the God of what? Hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So when you believe, the God of hope fills you with joy and peace that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to abound in hope. 10. God's word is practically redeeming. So, God's word, here they are, is divinely inspired. God's word is in eternally enduring. God's word is universally applicable. God's word is completely trustworthy. God's word is powerfully transforming. God's word is totally satisfying. God's word is everlastingly strengthening. God's word is incredibly enlightening. God's word is wonderfully hopeful. God's word is practically redeeming. Do you know that, that song, Ancient Words Ever True? Do you know that one? Lindsay, come and help us here. The preacher needs some help. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope. Dylan, come. All right. Let's sing it together. You ready to go? If you know it, join in. If you don't, we'll go through it twice. Let's sing it together. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.